This is Shakespeare Closely Read. I am your host, Mark Naftal. In this podcast, I read the works of William Shakespeare and other authors in the public domain. In addition to reading these works in their entirety, I will stop frequently to comment on the text's meaning and lessons to be drawn. This is a place for lovers of Shakespeare's words, words, words. I delight in the beauty of his language and believe through this beauty we can find truth and how to live a virtuous life. I hope this podcast can help students understand Shakespeare better and how to appreciate his sometimes difficult language. Maybe you can use it to help you write papers or study for tests. Drop me an email at shakespeareclosely at gmail.com if you have questions, comments, alternative interpretations, or would like some help. Let us begin. Last episode, we continued um, reading Plutarch's Lives with his history of uh, Coriolanus. And uh, <clears throat> as we read last time, now Coriolanus has been uh, exiled from Rome and decided to seek out the Volscians and uh, specifically his uh, his foil, um, Tullus, who uh, who Shakespeare calls Aphidius. And uh, uh, Plutarch has has um, Coriolanus kneeling in front of him, which um, which Plutarch had. Let's begin. Tellus, on hearing this, was extremely rejoiced, and giving him his right hand, exclaimed, Rise, Marcius, and be of good courage. It is a great happiness you bring to Antium. In the present you make us of yourself, except everything that is good from expect everything that is good from the Volscians. He then proceeded to feast and entertain him with every display of kindness, and for several days after they were in close deliberation together on the prospects of a war. While this design was forming, there were great troubles and commotions at Rome from the animosity of the senators against the people, heightened just now by the late condemnation of Marcius. Besides that, there are soothsayers and priests, and even private persons, reported signs and prodigies not to be neglected. Yeah, the Romans were great ones for omens, such things as flights of birds or uh, <clears throat> killing sacrificial victims, say a chicken or something like that, and observing the internal organs. Um, you see that? all throughout Livy as well. Back to the text, one of which is stated to have occurred as follows. Titus uh, Latinus, and then footnote, the correct name is probably Titus Titus um, Latinius, for which uh, Tiberius Attilia is is Livy, is merely a misreading. Okay, so they... they, uh, they think that Livy, the author here, thinks that Livy was correct on the name. A man of ordinary condition, but of a quiet and virtuous character, free from all superstitious uh, fantasies. And yet, um, yet more from vanity and exaggeration, he had an apparition in his sleep. As if Jupiter came and bid him tell, bade him tell the Senate that it was with a bad and unacceptable dancer that they had headed his procession. Having beheld the vision, he said he did not much attend to it at the first appearance, but after he'd seen and slighted it a second and third time, he had lost a hopeful son and was himself struck with a palsy. Okay, so Livy has this, uh, this episode as well. He was brought into the Senate on a litter to tell this, and the story goes that he had no sooner delivered the message there, but he had once felt his strength return and got up upon his legs, got upon his legs and went home alone without the need of any support. The senators, in wonder and surprise, made a diligent search into the matter. That which his dream alluded to was this, 
some citizen had for some heinous offense, given up a servant of his to the to the rest of his fellows with a charge to whip him first to the market and then to kill him. And while they were executing this command and scourging the wretch, who screwed and turned himself in all manner of shapes and unseemly motions, through the pain he was in, the solemn procession in honor of Jupiter happened to follow at their heels. Several of the attendants, on which were indeed scandalized at the sight, yet no one of them interfered or acted further in the matter than merely to utter some common uh, reproaches and exhortations on a master who had inflicted so cruel a punishment. For the Romans treated their slaves with great humanity in those these times, when working and laboring themselves and living together among them, they naturally were more gentle and familiar with them. It was one of the severest punishments for a slave who had committed a fault to have to take the piece of wood which supports the pole of a wagon and carry it about through the neighborhood. A slave who had once undergone the shame of this, and thus, uh, and thus seen by the household and the neighbors, had no longer any trust or credit among them. And had the name, um, and had the name of Fursifer, Furca being the Latin word for prop or support. Okay, that's a detail that was not in uh, in Livy, but the rest of it is pretty much the same. But Livy doesn't have um, the, the apparition happened, happening first. He talks about uh, um, the incident with the slave first. When therefore Latinus had related his dream and the senators were considering who this disagreeable and ungainly dancer should be, some of the company, having been struck with the strangeness of the punishment, called to mind and mentioned the miserable slave who was being lashed through the streets and afterward put to death. They noticed there that uh, the owner was apparently uh, within his rights to, uh, to kill a slave if he wanted to. Of course, uh, that'd be against their economic interest, one would think. Back to the text. The priest, when consulted, confirmed the conjecture. The master was punished. No one say how. An order is given for a new celebration of the procession and the spectacles in honor of the god. Numa, in other respects, also a wise arranger of, of religious offices. That must have been the censor at the time. Would seem to have been especially judicious in his direction with a view to the uh, attentiveness of the people. That when the magistrates or priests performed any divine worship, a herald would go before and proclaim with a loud voice, Hoc age, do this you are about, and so warn them to mind whatever sacred action they were engaged in, and not suffer any business or worldly avocation to disturb and interrupt it. Most of the things which men do of this kind be in a manner forced from them and affected by constraint. It's usual with the Romans to recommence their sacrifices and processions and spectacles, not uh, only upon a cause such as this, but for any slighter reason. If but one of the horses which drew the chariots uh, called Tensai, upon which the image, images of their gods were placed, happened to fall and falter, or if the driver took hold of the reins with his left hand, they would decree that the whole operation should commence anew. And in latter ages, uh, one and the same sacrifice would be performed 30 times over because of the occurrence of some uh, defect or mistake or accident in the service. Such was the Roman reverence and caution in religious matters. Marcius and Tullus were now secretly discoursing of their project with the chief men of Antion, advising them to invade the Romans while they were still at variance among themselves. And when shame appeared to hinder them from embracing the, the motion, as they were sworn to a truce and cessation of arms for the space of two years, 
The Romans themselves who furnished them with a pretense by making proclamation out of some jealousy or slanderous report in the midst of the spectacle that all the Vulcans who had come to see them should depart the city before sunset. Some affirmed that this was a contrivance of Marcius who sent a man privately to the councils falsely to accuse the Vulcans of intending to fall among, upon the Romans during the games and to set the city on fire. Okay, so Livy has uh, um, Aphidius, that is Tullius, um, doing this himself. Uh, Plutarch tells a slightly different story, but same sort of uh, uh, result is that the, Vul the Romans decreed that the Vulcans had to leave and couldn't stay for the spectacle. The pub uh, this public affront roused and inflamed their hostility to the Romans, and Tullus, perceiving it, made his advantage of it, aggravating the fact and working on their indignation, till he persuaded them at last to dispatch ambassadors to Rome, requiring the Romans to restore that part of their country and those towns which they had taken from the Vulcans in the late war. When the Romans heard the message, they indignantly replied that the Vulcans were the first that took up arms, but the Romans would be the last to lay them down the answer being brought back, Tullus called a great assembly of the Vulcans, and the vote passing for a war. He then proposed that they should call in Marcius, laying aside the remembrance of former grudges and assuring themselves that the services they should now receive from him as a friend and associate would abundantly outweigh any harm or damage he had done them when he was their enemy. Marcius was accordingly summoned, and having made his entrance and spoken to the people, won their good opinion of his capacity his skill, his counsel, his boldness, not less by his present words than by his past actions. They joined him in commission with Tullus to have full power as general of their forces in all that related to the war. And he, fearing lest the time that would be requisite to bring all the Vulcans together in full preparation might be so long as to lose him the opportunity of action, left order with the chief persons and magistrates of the city to provide other things while he himself prevailing upon the most uh, forward to assemble and march out with him, this volunteers without staying to be enrolled, made a sudden inroad into the Roman confines when nobody expected him, and possessed himself of so much booty that the Vulcans found they had more than they could either carry away or use in the camp. Okay, so we see there um, Coriolanus is um, consistent with his earlier actions that uh, um, maybe not impe impetuous, but he was certainly audacious. Um, in his in his war making that to seize the opportunity I guess he was trying to get there the first with the most as uh, general Forrest said the abundance of provision which he gained and the waste and havoc of the country which he made were however of themselves and in his account the smallest results of that invasion the great mischief he intended and a special object in all was to increase at Rome the suspicions entertained of the patricians and to make them upon worse terms with the people with this view, while spoiling all the fields and destroying the property of other men, he took special care to preserve their farms and lands untouched, that's the patricians, and would not allow his soldiers to ravage them or seize upon anything which, which belonged to them. From hence, the invectives and quarrels against one another broke out afresh and rose to a greater height than ever, the senators uh, reproaching those of the commonality with their late injustice to Marcius while the plebeians on their side did not hesitate to accuse them of having, out of spite and revenge, solicited him to this enterprise. And thus, while others were involved in the miseries of a war by their means, they sat like unconcerned spectators, as being furnished with a guardian and protector abroad of their wealth and fortunes, and the very person of the public enemy. Okay. 
Shakespeare doesn't have that happen. He has the plebeians in particular panicking um, when the war started. After this incursion and exploit, which is a great advantage to the Volscians, as they learned by it to grow more hardy and to contemn their enemy, that is to have to contempt for him, Marcus drew them off and returned in safety. But when the whole strength of the Volscians was brought together in the field with great expe expe expedition and alacrity, it appeared so considerable a body that they agreed to leave part in garrison for the security of their towns, and with the other part to march against the Romans. Marcus now desired Tullus to choose which of the two charges would be most agreeable to him. Tullus answered that since he knew Marcus to be equally valiant with himself and far more fortunate, he would have him take command of those that were going out to the war, while he made it his care to defend their cities at home and provide all conveniences for the army abroad. Marcus, such thus reinforced and much stronger than before, moved first toward the city called Kirkarum, uh, a Roman colony. He received its surrender and did the inhabitants no injury. Passing thence, he entered and laid waste the country of the Latins. We expected the Romans would meet him, as the Latins were their confederates and allies, and had often sent to demand succor from them. Succors, that's aid. The people, however, on their part, showing little inclination for the service, and the consuls themselves being unwilling to run the hazard of a battle, when the time of their office was almost ready to expire, they dismissed the Latin ambassadors without any effect, so that Marcus, finding no army to oppose him, marched up to their cities, and having taken by force Teleria, Lavici, Peda, and Bala, all of which offered resistance, not only plundered their houses, but made a prey likewise of their persons. Okay, it doesn't say whether it's slavery or killing, but they were prey. Meantime, he showed particular regard for all such as came over to his party, and for fear that might sustain any damage against his will, and camped at, at the greatest distance he could, and wholly abstained from the lands of their property. After, however, he had made himself master of Bola, a town not above ten miles from Rome, where he found great treasure, and put almost all the adults of the sword, and he haven't even selling them into slavery. And when on this, the other Vulsians that were ordered to stay behind and protect their cities, hearing of his achievements and success, had not patience to remain any longer at home. They came hastening in their arms to Marcius, saying that he alone was their general and the sole commander they would own. With all this, his name and renown spread throughout all Italy, and universal wonder prevailed at the sudden and mighty revolution in the fortunes of two nations, which the loss and the accession a single man had affected. Okay, so all seems to be uh, happening because of Marcius and his uh, leadership of the Volscians. All at Rome was in great disorder, and they were utterly averse from fighting, and spent their whole time in cabals and disputes and reproaches against each other, until news was brought that the enemy had laid close siege to Lavinium, where there were images and sacred things of their tutelar gods, and from whence they derived the origin of their nation. They being the first city in which Aeneas built in Italy. These tidings, okay, Aeneas is uh, the Trojan, and the Aeneid is named after him. So, uh, um, very important city to the Romans. These tidings produced a change in the universal that was extraordinary in the thoughts and inclinations of the people, but occasioned a yet str stranger revulsion of feeling among the patricians. The people now were for repealing the sentence against Marcius and calling him back into the city. Whereas the Senate, being assembled to preconsider the decree, opposed and finally rejected the proposal, either out of the mere humor of contradicting and withstanding the people in whatever they should desire, 
or because they were unwilling, perhaps, that he should owe his restoration to their kindness, or having now conceived a displeasure against Marcus himself, was bringing distress upon all alike. They had not been ill-treated by all, and was become a declared enemy to his whole country, though he knew well enough that the principal and all the better men condoled with him and suffered in his injuries. Okay, so I think we're going to see a uh, difference um, later on. Plutarch draws uh, parallels and differences uh, with the, the well-known uh, Athenian turncoat, Alcibiades. I'm going to look up how to pronounce his name. Um, but he was the one who, during the Peloponnesian War, uh, was uh, relieved of command by the, the democratic government of Athens. He went over to Sparta, and then um, he switched back again, and the mob welcomed him back. So, But Athens was a democracy and um, could frequently be ruled by the changeable mob, uh, whereas Rome uh, was a republic, and the, the plebeians, the democratic element, if you will, did not have control of Rome. So maybe a difference there. Back to the text. The resolution of theirs, that's the Senate being made public, the people could proceed no further, having no authority to pass anything by suffrage that is voting, and enacted for law without a previous decree from the Senate. When uh, Marcus heard of this, he was more exasperated than ever, and quitting the siege of Lavinia, marched furiously towards Rome and encamped in a place called the Cluelian ditches about five miles from the city. The nearness of his approach did indeed create much terror and disturbance. It had also ended their dissensions for the present. As nobody now, whether consul or senator, durst any longer contradict the people and their design of recalling Marcius, but seeing their women uh, running affrighted up and down in the streets, and the old men at prayer in every temple with tears and supplications, and that in short, there was a general absence among them both of courage and wisdom to provide for their own safety. They came at last to be all of one mind, where the people had been in the right to propose, as they did, a reconciliation with Marcius. The Senate was guilty of a fatal error to begin a quarrel with him when it was a time to forget offenses, and they should have studied rather to appease him. Okay, it wasn't the Senate that exiled him out. Oh, well. Back to the text. It was therefore unanimously agreed by all parties that ambassadors should be dispatched, offering him return to his country and desiring he would free them from the terrors and distresses of the war. The persons sent by the Senate with this message were chosen out of his kindred and acquaintances, who naturally expected a very kind reception at their first interview. Upon the score of that relation and their old familiarity and friendship with him, in which, however, they were much mistaken, being led to the enemy's camp, they found him sitting in state among the chief men of the Volscians, looking insupportably proud and arrogant. Okay, we see there Coriolanus is proud and arrogant. He bade them declare the cause of their coming, which they did in the most gentle and tender terms, and with a behavior suitable to their language. When they had made an end of speaking, he returned them a sharp answer full of bitterness and angry resentment as to what concerned himself and the ill usage he had received from them. But as general of the Volscians, he demanded restitution of the cities and the lands which had been seized upon during the late war, and the same rights and franchise should be granted them at Rome, which had uh, before accorded to the Latins, since there could be no assurance that a peace would be firm and lasting without fair and just conditions on both sides. He allowed them 30 days to consider and resolve. Okay, that was pretty generous. Because everything is to his advantage at this point. 
ambassadors being departed, and notice uh, Meninius is not listed among them since he's dead at this point. He withdrew his forces out of the Roman territory. Okay, so he he lived up to what he said. He gave him 30 days. This, those of the Vulcans who had long envied his reputation and could not endure to see the influence he had with the people, laid hold of as the first matter of complaint against him. Among them was also Tullus himself, not for any wrong done him personally by Marcius, but through the weakness incident to human nature. He could not help feel mortified to find his own glory thus totally obscured, and himself overlooked and neglected now by the Vulcans, who had so great an opinion of their new leader that he alone was all to them, while the other captains they, um, they thought should be content with that share of power which he might think fit to accord. That's he, that's Marcius. From hence the first seeds of complaint and accusation were scattered about in secret. And the malcontents met and heightened each other's indignation, saying that to retreat as he did was in effect to betray and deliver up, um, though not their cities and armies, yet what, what was as bad, the critical times and opportunities for action, on which depend the preservation of the loss of everything else. Since in less than 30 days space, for which he had given a respite from the war, there might happen the greatest changes in the world. Actually, that that is correct. But if uh, if, if Coriolanus uh, Marcius had prevailed, they would have had peace, and uh, the Volscians would have been uh, greatly uh, uh, relieved, if you will, from having to persecute the war, which was uncertain. Yet Marcus spent not any part of the time idly, but attacked the Confederates of the enemy, ravaged their land, and took from them seven great and populous cities in, the, in that interval. The Romans, in the meantime, durst not venture out to their relief, but were utterly fearful, and showed no more disposition or capacity for action than if their bodies had been struck with a palsy, and they became destitute of sense and motion. But when the thirty days were expired, and Marcus appeared again with his whole army, they sent another embassy to beseech him, and he would moderate his displeasure and withdraw the Vulcan army, and then make any proposals he thought best for both parties. I don't know why they just didn't agree to it. Oh well. The Romans would make no concession to menaces, but if it were his opinion that the Vulcans ought to have any favor shown them upon laying down their arms, they might attain all they could in reason desire. Okay, so the Romans are saying, uh, give up, and then uh, we'll do what you want. I'm, I'm sure that would have happened. The reply of Marcius was that he should make no answer to this as general of the Vulcans, but in the quality still of a Roman citizen, he would advise and exhort them, as the case stood, not to carry it so high, but think rather of just compliance, and return to him before three days were put to an end with a ratification of his previous demands. Otherwise, they must understand they could not have any further freedom of passing through his camp upon idle errands. When the ambassadors were come back and acquainted the Senate with the answer, seeing the whole state now threatened, as it were, by a tempest, and the waves ready to overwhelm them, they were forced, as we say, uh, in extreme perils, to let down the sacred anchor. I wonder what he means by that. Well, let's find out. A decree was made that the whole order of, of their priests, who had initiated the mysteries or had, had custody of them, and those who, according to the ancient practice of the country, um, divine from birds, should, should all and every one of them go in full procession to Marcus with their pontifical, that's their priestly array, and the dress and habit which they had respectively used in their several functions, and should urge him, as before, to withdraw his forces, and then treat with his countrymen in favor of the Vulcans. He consented so far, indeed, as to give the deputation an admittance into his camp, 
but granted nothing at all, nor so much as expressed himself more mildly, but without capitulating or receding, bade them once for all choose whether they would yield or fight, since the old terms were the only terms of peace. When the solemn application proved ineffectual, the priests, too, returning unsuccessful, they determined to sit still within the city and keep watch about their walls, intending only to repulse the enemy should he offer to attack them, and placing their hopes chiefly in time and the extraordinary accidents of fortune. Okay, so they're going to they're gonna withstand a siege, uh, hoping on extraordinary accidents of fortune and time. As to themselves, they felt incapable of doing anything. For their own deliverance, mere confusion and terror and ill-boding reports possessed the whole city. So at last a thing happened, not unlike we so often find represented, without, however, being accepted as true by people in general, and Homer. So he's saying, this is so incredible, it could have come out of Homer, but it's true, according to uh, Plutarch here. On some great and unusual occasion, we find him, as Homer say, but him the blue-eyed goddess did inspire, and elsewhere, and elsewhere. But some immortal turned my mind away to think what others of the deed would say. And again, weren't his own thought or word of God's command. Okay, so uh, Plutarch is appealing to Homer, which um, the ancients quoted uh, very regularly, to say, hey, maybe it was a god who, who had this, who, who caused these events to happen, which we're about to hear about the text. People are apt in such passages to censor and disregard the poet, as if by the introduction of mere impossibilities and idle fictions, he was denying the action of man's own deliberate thought and free choice, which is not in the least the case in Homer's representation, where the ordinary, probable, and habitual conclusions that common reason leads to are continually ascribed to our own direct agency. He certainly says frequently enough, but I consulted my own great soul, or, as in another passage, he spoke. Achilles, with quick pain possessed, resolved, uh, revolved two purposes in his strong breast, and in a third. Yet never to her wishes one the just mind of the brave Bellerophon. Okay, so uh, Plutarch is, says, hey, Homer recognized free will. Back to the text. But where the act is, is something out of the way and extraordinary and seems in a manner to demand some impulse for it, here he does not introduce divine agency not to destroy. Here he does introduce divine agency not to destroy, but to prompt the human will, not create in us another agency, but offering images to stimulate our own. Images that in no sort or kind make our action involuntary, but give occasion rather to spontaneous action, aided or, and sustained by feelings of confidence and hope. For either one is totally dismiss and exclude divine influences from every sort of casualty and or, origination in what we do. Or else, what other way can we conceive in which the divine aid and cooperation can act? Certainly, we cannot suppose that the divine beings actually and literally turn our bodies and direct our hands and our feet this way or that to do what is right. It is obvious that they must actuate the practical and elective element of our nature by certain initial occasions, by images presented to the imagination, and thoughts suggested to the mind, such either as to excite it to or avert and withhold it from any particular course. 
Okay, so here we see Plutarch dealing with the, the problem of uh, free will or predestination. He comes down decisively on the free will side. He is not a Calvinist. And uh, he says, oh, the divine can turn us towards something or make us or, you know, suggest images, but the decision is ultimately ours. Back to the text. In the perplexity which I have described, the Roman women went, some to other temples, but the greater part in the ladies of highest rank, to the altar of Jupiter Capitolinus. Okay, notice they did not go to Juno, but they went to Jupiter. Among these suppliants was Valeria, sister to the great um, Publicola, who did the Romans eminent service both in peace and war. Publicola herself was now deceased, as is told in the history of his life. Uh, but Valeria still lived still and enjoyed great respect and honor at Rome. Her life and conduct in no way disparaging her birth, she, suddenly seized with a sort of instinct or emotion of mind, which I have described, and happily lighting, not with it, without divine guidance on the right expedient, both rose herself and, and bade the others rise and went directly with them to the house of Volumnia, the mother of Marcius. And coming in and finding her sitting with her daughter-in-law and with her little grandchildren on her lap, Valeria, then surrounded by her female companions, spoke in the name of them all. Okay, before we hear that speech, this is probably a good place to end this episode. So we'll see what she urges uh, Marcus's mother to do and what becomes of that next time. And until then, adieu.